ATV Talk, the podcast. Sit down with your host industry professional, Leonard Duncan, as the men and women from the ATV world bring their behind-the-scenes stories to life. Every Tuesday at 5 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. And remember, dream big. It could be your story one day. GBC Power Sports Tires, a division of Green Ball Corp, has been producing industry-leading tires for ATV side-by-side market for over 25 years with tires like Mongrel, Dirt Devil, Terramaster, XC Master, Dirt Commander, and Groundbuster. They have a tire for your application. Top racers from GNCC, Works, and Best in the Desert rely on GBC Power Sports tires. So why shouldn't you? Go check them out at gbctires.com to see the full line of tires they offer. Thank you very much. GPR Stabilizer, a leader in steering dampener technology, brings you the new Q5 Sport ATV damper with better control and handling with an upgraded vane and seal system. Go check it out today, www.gprstabilizers.com or call 619-661-0101. Don't forget to tell them ATV Talks Hey. Shane Hit, welcome back to ATV Talk. Thank you so much for coming on. Hey, it's good to see you, Lanny. How you doing, buddy? I'm doing great, man. Thank you. Thanks again for coming and, and talking with me. Um, I know that you were sick a, a week or so ago. Um, everything going okay for you? Yeah, I kind of you know, somehow got COVID. Um, but yeah, I mean, I was you know, kind of felt like I had a bad cold there for a couple, three days, and um, I'm. I'm pretty much healed up now. I got a little bit of a cough sometimes for some reason, but I, I don't know. I guess that's natural or normal or whatever. So, but I'm uh, as far as doing good. I I feel fine. So, just uh, bored. You know, over here in West Virginia, we've been getting hammered with snow the last few weeks. So, um, just I, I haven't been anywhere, done anything all winter. I'm, so, going to go to Florida and. A couple trips to Florida here, I think, coming up pretty soon. So get out of this weather and you know, go do something nice. So I'd like to Crossway. Actually, I was I I went to the to the A one the last two years. Of course, they didn't have it last year. And then uh, this year, I was kind of sick and we were snowed in or whatever. My phone rang at nine thirty on and it must have been Saturday night. Then seven thirty, you're off, Tom. Two weeks two weeks ago, I guess it was. And it was Donnie Dimes, and we called him and his daughter with the A1. And he's like, hey, where are you at? And I'm like, I'm home. He's like, well, I'm at A1. He said, I wonder if he's here. You always go. And I said, no, nah, I didn't take it. I knew he was going. I, would, I probably would have went. But I didn't know anybody was going. And, and I didn't know how California was. But when I was out of California, I guess, in last year, everything was, everything was pretty much on lockdown because of COVID. So I didn't want to go through that again. Uh, they just have the mass Nazis out. and. And it's just all hysteria, you know. I didn't want to get into it because I get on my soapbox and then we'll get off track. And <laughs> that's not that's not where we need to go. <laughs> yeah, I understand. Um, I live in a I live in a real little area in Southern California that's never slowed down. You know, the restaurants slowed down for a while, but 
most all the businesses just kept running and uh, we were all good and we still are. So nothing's changed. Do they, I mean, do they, even in your area, do you guys have to wear a mask or anything? Um, there's a couple of the chain stores that make it happen. Um, but no, for the most part, no. Yeah, that's what we are. We don't really have, I don't know, I don't even know if we're supposed to wear a mask or not. I can't, I can't remember the last time I had a mask on. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I can't even, I mean, I, I know at one point we were supposed to wear a mask and I, I think they, I actually, I'll tell you what I think the high school, or high school does when you go to school. If your county's in a certain collar or whatever, you know, like if, if I know so, so many people in your county got it, they got to buy collars for like three or four or whatever. And so, like one week, you know, they may have to wear a mask, and the next week they don't have to. So, but that's the only place I know of around that, that's doing anything about masks is I think maybe the public school system, but that's it. So. I try I don't to wear any place that wants to make wants to make you wear one. Yeah, I do. They tell me I gotta wear a mask, I just leave it. I'm going somewhere else. Exactly. Same here. So you are a TT specialist as well as you were a pretty solid motocross guy. But what I wanted to talk to you about today is I wanted to get down in depth with something that I think is a true art form, and that's TT racing. And the key to a great TT racer is a great setup. And you talk to anybody in the industry from way back or during that era, and you're the guy. You always had the good setup. You were always fast. You were always in the top three and sometimes unbeatable. Well, I don't know. I mean, TT came natural to me. I, I don't, I really don't know why it did. It just did. Um, but those early years, I mean, even when I was fast at TT, I just didn't get real good results. I mean, we'd go out for practice or whatever, and I'd still be one of the fastest guys on the tracks. But when, when the race started, it was just, I still finished eighth, ninth, tenth, or wherever, you know. Um, but it, it took me a long time to really kind of get everything because it's a, it's a package deal, you know. I mean, you can have a fast motor. If your bike's not set up right, it doesn't matter, and you can be a good rider. Or if your bike's not set up good, then you know you'll never show it. I mean, I raced with a lot of guys who were really, really good. Um, just didn't really understand all the stuff and how important the little things was because everybody back in that year had a common if we did car. We all had fast motors. Motors they put them all the dynos first, the horsepower difference from the from the best motors to the worst. I mean, they were all close. Um, but it was just the little things that made the difference. Um, so I, I don't know. I mean, I, I like TT race. I, I like my series when it was together. Cause, you know, I mean, a lot of people don't understand how it worked. You know, I mean, how there was a, you know, the, there was the Grand National Champion, but you had the Motocross Champion, the TT Champion. You didn't have to run either one. You could just run one if you wanted to, still be the Motocross Champion, still be the TT Champion. But, um, I don't know. It was it was a cool series. It was a cool time to race, um, and it was it was a lot of fun. And when then when you threw in like the, the Mickey Thompson stuff, it was kind of a mixture between a TT and a um, and a motocross. I always thought so. That stuff was really awesome too. So you you talk about the little things. What are some of those little things that that you miss in your setup that can take you off the podium? Well, it's everything. I mean, it's just from, from tire choice 
to, to grooving, to siphon, to air pressures, uh, circumference, you know, I mean, back then we had, a, you know, we had a, a wide rear tire, a narrow rear tire, we had, you know, Hoosier tires, and American Racers. Um, I think they've got Maxis tires and some other brands now, too. But back then we just basically, basically when we started, we had just a Hoosier tri-track, and which was a, it was an okay tire. It was, um, uh, it, it was just had a really, really stiff sidewall, so it didn't, when the track was really slick, it didn't have a whole lot of side bite to it, but it was a good tire. And then American Racer, it was McCreary come out with it, and then they, they changed from McCreary to American Racer. And they had a really soft sidewall and some soft compounds. And you just groove it and siphon and stuff. And then, and then the other thing is shocks and you swing arm and your width. It would just, you know, the weight of the bike. And then obviously I was with a little bit of advantage because I was a smaller guy. Um, probably smaller than everybody, actually, besides maybe Greg Baker or Gary Denton. But so that, that helped a little bit, the weight thing did. I mean, everything we've done, we was concerned with weight. I mean, everything was built, you know, um, as far as parts was. We tried to build it a super light. Um, the wheel offsets and, and, and shocks, shocks and springs. You know, was was huge and you know, different sway bars. I mean, Raph made sway bars for the end of my career, but at the end of the game of career, we just I think maybe JP Racing or someone will use their sway bars. But there's in the sway bars once Raph comes to the sway bars, they they switch from the sway bar to actually portion bar. You, know, you can actually change the bar inside the sway bar, and it was different weights. You know, like one may be rated 150 pounds, one maybe 200 pounds. So. Depending on if the track was really hooked up or the track was slick, depending on what size portion bar you wanted in there. So, uh, I, I don't know. It just, I mean, it was nonstop, you know, gearing, pipes, silence. Um, we had all kinds of pipes. I mean, I don't, I probably carried, you know, when we was TT race, I probably had three or four different TT pipes that I carried with me. And depending on what pipe we had, also what gearing we had on. I mean, a lot of people I've looked over racing TT, and they may have all a 15 2 front sprocket, you know. And I'd be sitting there with a 13 2 in the car. Um, people are like, how's that work? You know, kind of depends on, you know, how your motor's ported and, you know, what, what pipe you've got on. And um, so, I mean, it, just, it was just so many things. And we changed a lot of stuff. But once, once we kind of got our baseline, we stayed with it. Now, we changed a lot of shocks and springs. A lot of people didn't realize how many shocks and springs we had. I got to the point when I kind of first started figuring out how important shocks and stuff was. To me, it was all. To me, once I got my bike where I wanted it, a lot of it was rides. Um, you know, if, and I always compared it, and I would tell people when I was racing, you know, if you get the bike, is, if the track is really slick, you want to fall back. I mean, just think of it as a monster truck. The monster truck don't corner very well. It gets too much side bite. So if the track is really slick, or you try to run, run it out of the corner real fast, the monster truck is going to tip over. And that's the same thing you're going to do with the bike. You're raising it up when the track is slick and trying to get it to roll over. Uh, if the track is really hooked up, and there's all kinds of traction, you want, you want to make it more like a go-kart. You want the thing slammed on the ground so to, to try to get it to slide. Because you know, if, you, if there's a lot of traction and your bike's tall, it's going to tip over just like a monster truck. You want to get the bike low and wide. So it was just, I don't know, there was a lot of stuff. I mean, a lot of stuff going through through your head. And, and um, I had a lot of help. You know, I you know I had Wayne Ridding do, no matter how many sets of shocks on me, I mean, if I, every week he would bring me a new set of shocks. You know, and I had front shocks. And 
quarter inch lengths, you know. I mean, I may have a 14 inch front shock and a 14 inch and a quarter, and a lot of people would just, would just, you know, raise and lower clip on them or whatever. But, you know, I didn't do that. I had Wayne build me six or seven sets of shocks in the front and a bunch of them to the back. And you know, I still got boxes of that stuff. And, and you know, because I, I just felt that stuff was, it was important. And, and you know, and, with, with Wayne helping, and I had Curtis on my motors, but not only was Curtis able to do my motors, he was also, he was a racer, so he knew that stuff too. So Curtis could see the stuff on the track and come in and say, hey, you know, how about let's do this or let's try that, you know, and throw things at me. And uh, you know, between, you know, Curtis and, and Wayne and myself, we, uh, we usually get pretty close. So, you know, these last few years, we were, uh, we're definitely pretty competitive. So, did you ever hear of them putting shot in the swing arm? Yeah, I had some. Yeah, yeah, we did. I don't kind of think he did that for me. I had some lighter swing arms that were filled with lead. Um, and we we had we had one or two of them, and they were two inch under, or two or three inch under. And I still have them. I still got a lot of two fifty R stuff that I put in my spare house that I. You know, and when I would get other stuff, and then stuff just got piled up, and then I moved out and moved on, and then moved to four strokes, and all that stuff still left under there. But, um, but I had some, some, uh, I think they were three inches, a three inch under and a four inch under, maybe filled with, with that stuff. And we messed with it a little bit, and it seemed to work pretty good. But the thing I didn't like about it, even though I got away from running it, was it was just too much weight. I mean, you're just tugging around a bunch more weight. You know, I was always trying to make my stuff as light as I could, and then you throw on a 50 pound swing arm. You know, you just took your bike from spent all this time, you know, building aluminum sub frame. So we we got away from that, and in a lot of people for a long time, even like Gary. And if you look at some of the pictures of Gary getting when he was like, we, you know, I always used to joke with him all the time and say, Gary, you can throw your chain away because your swing arm's so short that your ears prop is just running against your fast profit, you know? I mean, his tires were clean up underneath that back or like four inch under swing arm and stuff. And we had got to there toward the end where we never ran anything, um, pretty much, but just a two arm. Um, tracks weren't super, super slick. They were probably as slick as they were back a few years before, but when we were on those people contact, they just wanted to get up tire. So when we went to the American race, they were able to go along the swing arm and and run it. I couldn't run a three inch and a four inch under swing arm. I could, um, but I didn't like it before. I felt like I couldn't get good starts with it. Starts were really, really inconsistent. You know, one time I would I walk real good, and then the next time I'd win it. Um, and with a two under swing arm and a one under swing arm, the bike almost always came off nice and straight. And you could just kind of pull the front tires up a little bit because you know, TT was really, really important to get a good start. So, I want to ask a question because I want clarification on the, the shot or the lead in the swing arm. I understand that it added weight, but you weren't spinning that weight. It was the weight to push the tires to the ground. Um, and I understand you wanted everything lighter, but maybe I'm misunderstanding the 
theory behind it. When you put the weight in the swing arm, forces the tires to the ground. It's not like putting weight on the front where you're pushing it. No, but if, if you still got to drag it around, you know, it'd still be like me at 150 pounds lining up against Gilbert at 220 or 200 pounds. You know, I mean, I, I'm still at a pretty pretty good advantage because you know that. I mean, you you both got 50 horsepower, 45 horsepower, whatever it takes to make. You know, and you got one guy that weighs 150 pounds with a guy that weighs 200 pounds. You still got to pull that. Still got to pull that swing on. Still got to pull all that weight. So. Um, I understand if you were on a super, super slick track, yeah, it would probably work. But here I am giving up 50 pounds, you know, or something to, you know, to Joe Bird when I put that swing arm on. So, um, and, and I felt like the, the bike worked good enough when when the shocks were right. I, I mean, there's so many other adjustments. I just didn't feel like we really needed because if I needed more traction, I felt like I could raise the bike up and the bike would work just as good. And I didn't have to carry that 50 pounds in our rail. Um, we never really had much trouble hooking our bikes up. I mean, sometimes we'd get into some tracks that were slick and you'd need a little more traction. But honestly, I felt like we could narrow the rear end up, change the offsets, go to a 4 one offset, go get away from the 3 2, go to a 4 one the front, narrow the rear end up, and set a wide tire. And uh, raise the bike up and, and raise the bike together, not just the front, not just the back, but raise the whole bike together. And uh, I felt like that, you know, it, it was just better than carrying an extra 50 pound route if you didn't have to. So, so I'll, I'm struggling I'll, to make Eichner's bike work in Indiana, Pennsylvania. <laughs> that place. Yeah, I think of, I think of that place. The Challenger Raceway, um, but you know the Challenger is only probably about three hours from my house. So if they had a local race, um, and I actually went up there and raced my stock car up there too. So, so when I would get a chance and they'd have a local race, you know I would go up there and run. So that was one of my local tracks. So I, I knew that place pretty good. It was slick, and I kind of rode on that slick stuff. So I was better on this. I was better on the slick stuff. I mean, I felt like when the tracks got slicker. Definitely a lot more bike set up for sure. Um, but when, when the tracks were hooked up and every, everybody could go fast, you know, I mean, we knew that Doug Gust and Joe Bird and, and uh, Todd Muscovy and, and those guys, you knew they, they could all hold a wide open. I mean, they can all do that. But when the track got slick and you had to kind of make some adjustments and kind of maybe back your corner up a little bit or uh, slow down, as they say, to go faster. And that's when those guys really had a little bit more trouble. And I'm not so sure that some of my bigger could look. If, if I would have set Doug Dust back up for I'm not so sure Doug Dust had one of us. So I mean, he was a good rider. He didn't, his, his, and his TT, he did okay on TT, but he didn't get the results on TT that he probably could have if he you know, had someone work on the bike that was really, really good. So I was a new, kind of knew that stuff. Did Wayne Henson know much about TT? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, Doug Gust, he did. He was really pretty bad at TT um, until Wayne Henson started helping. Yeah, Wayne Henson was really good at TT. Um, Wayne Henson was like, you know, when you put him and Gary together, that, that is a dumb question, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, they were they were they were just ahead of everybody at, at that point and everything that he ever done. I mean, they were um, they lived in California where. 
they could go out and they could test on some dry lake bed or something somewhere or, you know, any time, any, any time of the year, really. Um, so the problem where Gary and Wayne got into was when the McCreary's first come out, the American Racer Tire first come out, Gary had a deal with Hoosier and Gary was sponsored by Hoosier. So Gary didn't want to switch, but the American Racer was so much better that after two or three races, I, I, I think Gary had a choice but to switch because he was just getting annihilated. Um, and it wasn't because they were doing anything wrong. It's just that tire at that point was just so much better for what we were doing. Yeah, I remember it was hard to get him sometimes because they would get bought up pretty fast. Yeah, I was a dealer. And then here's the thing is they were from Indiana, Pennsylvania, which is where the challenger race was. Um, so that, that was their local track. So that's how I kind of met them with one of their racing local races. They came over to me and said, hey, but it's tired. I don't know if that's the thing or not. I ain't going to my ears. You know, but I, I, mean, I guess I'll try them and I'll stuff them on. I'm like, no, I'm going to get the same slide this day. So we, uh, me and, and John Stodd in Tennessee started using them and, um, they were, they were definitely really good. And then, of course, they were close to me and they were, they didn't have no market at the, at the TT stuff at that point. So I started uh, buying tires from them and taking them to the races and selling them. Um, but then everybody started running them. It got to be two months. And I said, you guys can have to get someone else to do it because I'm there trying to race and trying to sell tires too. Mm-hmm. It was a mess, but because um, <laughs> I got a really good deal on it. But, yeah, it was. So that was where Gary got into it. But, I mean, it didn't take Wayne Henson. It didn't take Wayne this long to figure out anything. He was doing it. So he was pretty smart. Right. I didn't know about the different uh, Torsion bars in the uh, in the raft. Yeah. If you ask Raft about, he'll tell you that's good. And it comes from the sprint car world. Um, Daryl's up there with a lot of sprint cars. And he's real good friends with Greg Baker, who who raced TTs and was really good at TT too. And uh, so Daryl and, and Greg Greg raced the sprint cars, so and Daryl hang out with Greg's son and realized that. Hey, this, there's something to that. Yeah, there's all those bars in between those things, um, are different pounded bars. And so depending on if the track, if the track was really hooked up, we'd have a stiff bar in there. And if the track was really, really slick, we, you know, we, we would put in a soft bar and let it flex a little more. Um, a lot of people didn't know that. I think everybody knows it now. They may not. I mean, they may just run whatever he sends them. So, but I, I, I don't, I don't believe there's as much. Uh, transfer of information as you think. Uh, I could be wrong, but in in the key graphic where you have some super fast guys, they've figured it out. But I don't think the average guy that's going to race a TP, even an average mid pack pro guy, has probably not figured it out yet. They probably haven't. You know, I mean, I know a lot. It took me years to figure that stuff out, and obviously, you know with different bars and stuff like that, different tires and stuff. Once you get to the top and, and you start winning races like that, then everybody wants to you know, Everybody wants their sticker on your bike or, or whatever. So you're at a huge advantage, you know, when you get up there. I mean, if I was riding around fifth or sixth in the A class or the B class or something, do, do I, I mean, would someone like Darrell Raff come up to me and said, hey, and I got these different portion bars you want to try? You no, know, I mean, I'm going to have to figure that out on my own. Or I have to come friends with some guy in the pro class that says, hey, you might want to try this or whatever. But 
it was weird because a lot of guys in the third class were when the A class had come off the back or, or pro amp, they would say to the guy, say, Hey, what's your bike doing or whatever? And the, the kid would come up to him and say, Hey, that track really was slick and stole this and stole that. And the guys was like, They don't listen to them, you know? And and I didn't either, you know, early when, in my career. I mean, some kid came up to me and told me track was this, it was that, or whatever. I didn't always listen to them. But then I kind of figured out, even though they're not going as fast as we are, some of those kids are, you know, you know they they give you better feedback than what they drive. So, um, you know, I, I become friends with some kids that was in some lower classes, and I always go talk to them. But it was it was amazing the stuff that they would tell you about the track. You know, one kid would come off and tell you the track is super hooked up. The next kid would come off the track and say it's slick as can be. But if you watch him ride, the one kid that said it's hooked up, he's riding in the groove. The kid that said it's slick as can be, he's out of the groove. So you're like, yeah. I mean, you're both you're both telling me the right information, but depending on where you're riding and where you're at on the track. So I, it was it was crazy, but. I liked PT and it was it, I liked Boston because I was good at it. And uh, it came natural to me. But I had a lot of fun. I mean, if, if I hadn't had Curtis and Wayne, I don't know that I'd ever done as good as I did. Um, probably, I probably would have won a couple races. But, um, you know, once they kind of got me headed in the right direction and kind of got in my head the stuff that I, I needed to really concentrate on, because Curtis would say to me when I was loud, he said, listen, Think about each and every corner, you know, not just this corner or that corner or whatever. Think about what the bike is doing in every single corner. And, and that's what I would try to do. You know, I mean, if I'm going through one corner, and there was times I would forget, I'd say, man, my bike is really good at everything I turn left on, but when I turn it right, I'm stuck too much. So we may go out the next time with, with the, with the spacers on the, on the right side a little wider than a little on the left side. Um, just to, to, to make it work. I mean, it may, someone may walk by and say, oh, you got your spacer different. But we got that because we were struggling in turning right turns versus left turns. So I don't know. It was, I don't know. It was a lot of, um, trial and error, really. But I, I never really felt like I was the fastest guy. Um, but somehow I won a bunch of races. You were the fastest guy, though. That's the whole thing. Um, did you guys get into making custom axles and hubs? We did, and um, I think it was Daryl made some hollow axles. Maybe some some solid hollow axles, one time, super super lightweight hubs and stuff. They brought it after you with him. We tested it for a while. Daryl, because Daryl does a lot of local racing stuff. Daryl's like, we got it, we got it, we got it. But, so, and I tested with it, rode with it here for a couple months. I don't think we have any problem with it. We come to Astorilla, and first lap in practice, the thing snapped off the barrel. And I'm like, I'm done with that. Yeah, get that thing off. But Ken um, Stewart uh, over at Cat Track, you know, Greg Stewart, who are also raced, um, and Jimmy Thompson. Jimmy was his, I guess, his brother-in-law for a while. And uh, they made me some titanium hubs. And made me a couple sets, and those things were super, super light. And I flipped somewhere in Missouri one time in the room, and, but, and then they quit making them. But man, those things were so nice. I mean, they were titanium hubs, titanium studs, and everything. They didn't, they didn't make enough. But 
anything we could we could get weight off of. You know, I had walls make me A arms and to, to, to use the 400 EX spindle because it was aluminum, and then I had to have someone to make me an adapter to put 250 all front brake caliper on the 400 EX spindle, and, and uh, I don't know, it was just anything we could think of. And Walsh was, I mean, he, he took my stock frame because everybody, everybody back in you know, before the end of the two-stroke thing, everybody had you know boom stock frames or later frames even for TT in the pro class, but I just ran up just a stock 250R frame, and we chopped it up, made it as light as we could, chopped the subframe off of it, and uh, Mike made me an aluminum subframe for it, and uh, we just got everything as light as we could get it. So, plus with me being lighter than everybody else, I had a little bit of an advantage. So, did Curtis lighten any of the interiors on the motor? I don't think so. I think we just, it was pretty much, and and when Curtis, he was such a Honda guy, I mean, it was Honda 250R ignition, Honda flywheel, Honda crank. I mean, we didn't mess with any aftermarket crank stuff. The only thing we did change, we had, <clears throat> at one point, we had Timmy, Timmy Farr and, and Julie both worked over at Kempton Bearing. So they were making us some, some transmission gears. So we were using those gears because they were a little stronger than the stock Honda gears. But as far as everything else, we were running pretty much. It's just on the stuff, you know, 88, 89's gearing and stuff. I think 87 through 89 might have had the same gearing. I'm not sure. Did you play with carb size and compression? Yeah, we played with a lot of carb. Um, seems like at the end we were on like a, a, a I think it was a 38 EWK airstrike, but it was 4 to 41, even on our, even on my TT bike. Um, Big air filters, as big as air filters we could get. Um, the curves would build a special tube and stuff coming from the carburetor back to the air filter. Um, compression, we messed with compression, but not a lot back on the East Coast. Everything was pretty much around sea level, 1200 foot, you know, or close to sea level. Um, now, if we were going into higher elevations, if we were at Denver or Salt Lake City or somewhere like that, you know, with, with some of the Mickey Thompson stuff. Yeah, we changed we changed heads for compression for sure because that higher elevation just killed them. And so, well, but back here we pretty much stayed with compression, and and I don't even remember what we ran. Seems like we were around two twenty on compression, but I can't remember. To be honest, it sounds about normal. I was just wondering if if you had changed the compression to soften. The throttle response, you know, by taking it out, or if you needed more, you'd add more compression, you know, to get that snap on the bottom. No, the Curtis was really took care of all the motor stuff. And he would, it drove me from freaking nuts because we would go to a race and, and we would race and we and say we, we won, say we won after or whatever. I mean, the race is over, we pull the bike in a trailer and he takes the cylinder off. The pipe and the silencer, and carburetor, and he's boxing it all up and he takes it back to California. And he said, I just want to take it back and we'll make some changes, run it on the dyno. And he had a, a full chassis dyno, keep the yards on all chassis, he'd take it back and set it on there. And he would play with it, move stuff around, try different pipes and different carbs and different gearing and stuff like that and bring it back. And I mean, he, 
I, there's a lot of times I don't think he did anything to just carry it back and forth. But I think he likes to keep it because he's afraid I may take it out. We'll go ride motocross with him up there if it's a ball off of suck for third or something. So, <laughs> he just took, he always took the stuff with him. So, um, and all those those years, those last few years, we when we got into power about it would have been 2001 through 2003. Um, I had one, and I used it on motocross. I used it on TT. I mean, I used it as my practice bike. And uh, he'd come to the races, and he would just throw another piston in it. Because it was nicocil, the silver was. So I would use it for everything. You know, if we're running on motocross, we'd use a different pipe, different carburetor, different gear. And stick it, take it off, and move it over to the TT bike. And things, you know, obviously the TT bike can have its own carburetor and pipe and stuff. So, um, but we were really happy with those. And, and even Jeremiah Jones had, had one. And Jeremiah had two. Uh, but Jeremiah would only have run the one. You know, and Curtis sent him another one. He, he wouldn't run it. And Curtis called him and said, stick that new cylinder on there. I think it runs better. And he's like, no, 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 I'm not going to do it. He said, I like it when I run. And this is like, Jeremiah, I hate to tell you, but the same guy that did that first one you're running, if you like, is the same guy that did the, that other one right there. So you can stick that thing on. But <laughs> I don't know. We were, I was stubborn about it. You know? There was times he would show up at a race and for like a motocross race at Loretta's or somewhere, and I'd have a, or even the first race, I'd have a brand new bike. I'd practice all one time at and I'm like, I don't like it, you know? And it's all brand new. I'll say, this is run the practice bike, and it's busted and cracked and beat the crap. And it's like, all right. So we would take the motor out of the new bike and put in the old bike and move the plastic off the old bike, onto the, off the brand new bike, on the old bike. So we could run, and I would go out and race my practice bike. You know, just push that new bike off the corner. I was just weird about that stuff. You like them when they were the chassis were a little more loose. I guess I did. I, I liked what I was, you know, what I was used to, you know. And, and if I was, and it seemed like when I would get on a different bike, you know, handle grips were new and the levers were always in different places. And I'd get moving them around. I'd be pulled up on the start line. And, you know, I'd already practiced the day before two or three times, and already practiced that morning. I get pulled up the start line. A lot of people nervous energy, you know. And I'm like, hey, and I just. I know my clutch level's too high. That thing hadn't been moved all year. For some reason, I just thought it was too high. So I'd have to move it down, and I'd have to adjust my throttle. And, uh, yeah, I don't know if it was just nervous energy or just what I was comfortable to, but it was crazy because I, I was scared to cut anything, you know, and first say, well, let's change gear. And I'm like, no, 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 I, I'm good, I'm good. It's three below. You know, you walk by and Timmy's cars over there, he's changing gear, and he's changing grips, he's changing handlebars, he's changing everything. And I'm like, man, don't touch my stuff. So I was just I don't know, I was I was always worried about making the changes. So but you know, I mean well Mal Morris downtown with Doug and and he made me change we put everything in the trailer on that bike. Yeah, there was there was time I would I would do a bike before we went to the race, I'd have it ready and it was always ready to get there. And like Baron Dukes was with me one time, and we had uh, we went. And I came from where we was at, what TT race was at, and I went out and I practiced. My dad and Baron's like, "You good?" I'm like, "I don't, I don't feel good. I'm so feel right." He's like, "We're the fastest." I'm like, "Well, let's, let's I want to change a couple of things." Like, okay, let's see, what do you want to change? I said, "I want to change front wheel. I want to change the Nerf bars, and I want to take I want to take the, the Nerf bars off." But at this point, we had a lot of propane. I want to go back to my stock 
um, foot pegs, which are more raised and, and forward. I said, obviously, then you got to change the brake lever. You got to change the shifter. Um, change, I want to change, and I, I mean, I just give you a whole list of stuff. And parents look at me like, you're the fastest out there. Why are you taking all this stuff? I'm like, I don't, I'm just not comfortable. So I just, I just want to put it back this way. This is the way I always wrote it. And even when I always run my foot pegs, I raised, I always raised my foot pegs. I hated even on motocross and all the man on the ground and later would build those passes and the foot pegs were, were even with the bottom with, with the AC nerf bars and stuff that we hit and, and your feet would just kind of hit the ground. And I, and I hated that. So the AC always built my pegs up for my motocross stuff. And then on my TT bike, I would just run a stock foot peg. And if you look at the stock foot peg, it's kind of up and forward as compared to, you know, where the, the pro peg would be, which is back and lower. And I always liked that foot peg really like it on TT because it allowed me to get up in the front of the bike a little bit better. You know, I felt like it moved my weight a little bit forward. Um, so it felt like the bike turned better because um, I was, you know, it was more weight for in the front of the bike. So, um, no one else ever ran it. Everybody, no one could understand why I wasn't running them. Do you, do you think it had something to do with your size? It may have been like probably, I would say the quality definitely wasn't the pace of the town. But, you know, and I think I I missed a portion of that because the Wi-Fi froze. Okay. (laughs) What I was saying was the the taller the taller airport had moved up, getting me more distance between you know my ass and the the seat. You know, it's a couple more inches of leg travel that I could use for suspension. So definitely work the the taller airport. You know, the foot pegs work better for me on motocross. Now, obviously, if you're someone like Joe Bird or someone that's six foot six or whatever the heck he was, six foot four, you know, you, you were already plenty tall enough. You didn't need it, you know. So. And at his size, wasn't it kind of amazing that he could even compete? Yeah, and I want that even. Some areas, you know, I think long races, really rough tracks, I mean, kind of benefited those guys. And you think about tracks that they were really good at and what they were good at, it, it was usually the it was usually the really rough stuff. I mean, Joe was good in the rough stuff, Dolly. Unbelievable in the rough stuff. Um so yeah, the I think that the size of those guys, Corey Ellis was another one really good in the rough stuff. He just said all in in places the other places that Place like High Point or or uh, ride and hold the hold the bike out. I'm better. I couldn't get down. 
right. You're struggling with a, a couple Wi-Fi stops on us. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. But yours and mine. My Wi-Fi's not been real good here the last a couple of days. We've got a bunch of snow and it keeps freezing up. Yeah, every once in a while it, it did that. We lost a, uh, yeah, I didn't lose much, but I lost a couple of sentences when you were talking about uh, Joe and Corey and them and places that they did really good in the rough. Yeah, yeah, the rough and, and places like Mount Morris and, and some of the tracks that had a lot of off campus. They, uh, they, they could really lean down on the side of the bike where I couldn't, you know. And I was pretty much straight up because I wasn't very tall. Same with Gary Jeff. I mean, he just couldn't get off the side of the bike. Did, did, uh, you mentioned that Curtis was a Honda guy where most people at that point in time were still using the Honda ignition solely because it was still working and readily available. Um, did you guys change the weight of the flywheel on TT at all? Oh, yeah. Yeah, we had, it's, it's weird because we talk, I, I talk about this quite a bit. Um, we ran a big heavy flywheel on Curtis. I think what what we were running on the flywheel was was a piece that he apparently cut off of a flywheel on I think on a four hundred EX or some four stroke. Whatever he was cutting off that was what we were putting on. He had the spacer. Well, Wayne Henson actually I think made him a uh, pretty good size spacer to, to spacer out the ignition cover because um, it would there's no way you get the cover on without hitting the flywheel. It's huge um, and it made a huge difference. But they, here here to get back to the, the whole flywheel thing. In the in the early days, we lightened the flywheel. You know, everybody was lightening the flywheels. And then at some point, we went back to a soft flywheel. And at some point, then we went to a heavy flywheel. And the heavy flywheel really worked better. And really, on a dyno or, or a drag race or whatever, the light flywheel probably was better. But what I liked about the heavy flywheel was if we had a a real pipey TT pipe on a real high rev pipe. If you were got on the track and if you, if you come through the corner and you hit some bump, um, that that light flywheel will put light that your RPMs would really fall off quick. So when you started hitting bump and the bike started, the tires started leaving ground and coming back down and bouncing with that big heavy flywheel, all that heavy mass just kept that motor rolling and. Uh, you didn't lose the RPMs like you did when it was white. Um, so we loved that heavy flywheel. I mean, on my 250Rs, we got to where we ran on those crosses, we, we ran on everything. Now, Gary and Wayne Henson, they went, they were even a step further. I mean, they weren't just running a heavy flywheel. Wayne had these heavy clutch baskets they were running. So, I mean, he was, when it was slick, Wayne was waiting everything. Um, we didn't have any heavy clutch baskets. But, so the, the heavy flywheel worked. I loved it, and uh, got to the point where I ran on everything. You know, it's, just, it's just weird. You want everything light, but then you freaking put a heavy flywheel. I did put a heavy flywheel. Now the helmet rode the bike. It reacted so much different. I, I, when you would bounce across the bump, you know, with a light flywheel, I mean, you'd be going through a corner and you hit some chatter up the tires leave the ground. It's like the, the, the it would fall off. Right. You know, lose RPMs and lose them pretty quick, and then you'd have to get back up. That big old heavy flywheel, once you got all that heavy mass going, you got that crank spinning, and it didn't fall off. I mean, you hardly even noticed it. So, I mean, I was shocked the first time that we started running it. I mean, instantly when I run it, 
Curtis was like, what do you think of that flywheel? I'm like, wow, that's amazing. And uh, I said, can we run on motocross? He said, we can try it. We put it on motocross. I'm like, I'm, I'm running this thing everywhere. So Didn't hurt I, you start? No, I don't, I don't think it really did. I mean, we ran it. So, I mean, if it did, it didn't hurt us bad. But, because, I mean, my starts were usually pretty good. But we, uh, we ran it. And, matter of fact, I, even when I went to ask the deal a couple of years ago, that was one of the last things I've done. It's like that heavy flying door. So, you know, I don't, I don't know, I don't know if it hurt us, hurt us in the starts or not, but it sure did help on the racetrack. Did, did you do any, uh, racing on the four strokes that you in the GT? Yeah, we, we, we raced, um, I raced, I mean, I only raced three or three years on the, on the four strokes, but I don't, I don't remember, I don't remember doing heavy flywheels on the four strokes. I don't think we did. I don't think we had any heavy flywheels on any of the four strokes. How much different was your setup on a four stroke for a TT track than it was on a Um, we did the same stuff. I mean, we, we started off with the same like swing arm, uh, same, you know, obviously rasp, sway bars, different portion bars. But as far as what we were doing, it was all pretty much the same. You know, we were working with, um, just mainly changing widths and ride heights. Um, because so really anytime you change the ride, I can change the roll. The center, just to try to get everybody comfortable, obviously, with the track. That's why it was so important to watch what the track was doing. You know, and a lot of guys didn't, or if they did, they wasn't sure what they were looking for. But, you know, I mean, obviously, if the track was a little bit slick, we'd raise the bike up a little bit. If it was really slick, we'd raise it up a lot. But um, if it was really, really hooked up, you know, we'd lower it down, and there was times, you know, it, with, even with a 250R or even a 450R, if you had all your spacers on the inside and you had a 10-inch wide wheel on the back, you were over the width. You were over 50 inches. So you had to be careful. And there was a couple times where I ran by over 50 inches. Um, we were asked to do it one time. The very last race of the day, I just won, I'd won the pro class earlier in the day, and it was close. Timmy was right on me. He actually got by me and I passed it back. And I really couldn't get away from him. And in the last race of the day was the Pro Am race. And so we go out for the Pro Am race. And I told Toby the Toby Hutchinson, buddy of mine, Detroit, he was my mechanic at that point. And I uh, told Toby we were going out, I said, Why why it all the way out? Just let's just drop the thing on the ground with the track and really took rubbing that day. And it didn't do that often. I had done it a few times, but it had done it like that. It was so hooked up. You couldn't make the thing slide at all. I mean, you had nothing to do. So I lowered it as low as we could get that thing and as wide as we could. And I way up on air pressures and stuff. And Toby said to me, he said, hey, he said, you know, you're going to build 50 inches when we do that. I said, it's the Pro-Am class. It's the last race of the day. No one cares. No one gives a crap. So he said, I'm just telling you, you're over 50 inches. If they decide to run you through that spreader bar, I said, I'm not worried about it. So we line up, and I get the whole shot. Jeremiah gets out second, and Timmy was third. Well, I ran off flat. And uh, Timmy, Jeremiah ended up second. Timmy did third. Well, we didn't ask, do you go down the front straightaway and then turn in down the front straightaway in the grass right in front of the tower? 
I come down through there, and, and uh, just I'm coming down through there, I thought, oh, I should, probably shouldn't have run off like that. And uh, Jeremiah comes pulling down through there, and, I, and the first thing went through my head was, I'm over 50 inches. And uh, I said, I hope no one, I hope they don't want to run some spread of walk. They do very often. And uh, the referee come walking across the track. I can't what his name was. Um, they already knew. Yeah, he, yeah, he come walk across the front fairway, and what he said was, is he said, uh, guys, we're not going to pack anything today. He said, I got a four-stroke board at Doug Morris' cafe. He said, Doug Morris said, there's a four-stroke being poured out over there that was protested that I got to get to. He said, so we're not going to pack anything with you guys today. Just going back. And Jeremiah just pulled right up behind me. And I, and I, and I made sure Jeremiah was close to me. And Timmy was behind him. And Timmy hollers and says, Doug says, can we at least run through the spreader bar? <laughs> I said, oh, shit. And, uh, Doug said, no, you're good, going back. And so I knew then. I said, I'm out of here. So I took off, and there, and I took off, go across the racetrack, and throughout the, the gate, get off the track, and then I throw straight up to my pits. And I, I went up straight up, and I pulled in. I looked back on the lead, and I seen Timmy stop, stop and talk to the referee. And uh, I knew then Timmy told him, because Timmy, he saw that, you know, I'm too wide. So he just wanted to run. And if we run the spread of ball, I mean, I was ball back. As soon as I pulled in the trailer, I turned around and, and here comes Toby walking up. I said, I said, hey, change the spacer real quick. Toby's like before. I said, change that spacer real quick. I said, they want to run through the spread of ball. So Toby grabs, grabs the tools and, and Timmy pulls up the back of the trailer and said, what are you doing? I said, I'm changing my damn uh, spacer. Get the fuck out of here. So, <laughs> you know, and I mean, he basically, he, he was mad because he did not beat him, but, and I didn't think really about it. It's not a big deal. It's a pro-am stuff, but I, I mean, I shouldn't have said it. I never really thought about it. I thought, pro-am, we, the pro-class, nobody cared. But I guess somebody cared. You yeah, guys cared. <laughs> but they, they did. They, they made me run through the spreader bar. Um, and I backed it out, you know, because by that time, the referee shit got the spreader. He walked out there. Timmy apparently told him. Somebody told him. They come down there and said, Hey, we're running through the spreader bar. I'm like, Oh, God, here we go. So we went down there and they had the spreader bar set up right there, almost when you pulled the track. And I went to pull through it. <laughs> my right tire, he was going, Doug Morris was on the right side of the bike. And the right tire went through the spreader bar. The left tire went right over the top of it. And Doug Morris like, It's good to me. And I turned around and took off, and they're all over there. I'm like, His left tire went from over the top of the side of it, you know. I'm like, he said I was good, so I went back. And Wayne Meridian at this point had got into it. Of course, Wayne, he helped Timmy too, and he helped me. And Wayne's like, he's good. Wayne didn't realize what was, what was going on. So Wayne's like, he's good. Because Wayne didn't want to see any of his riders ever get disqualified. Right. So, so Wayne's like, he's good, he's good. So him and Doug Moore started arguing about it or whatever. Doug's like, I didn't see the other side. Did it fit? And Wayne's like, well, of course it fit, you know? So I went back through there, and then time I got back there, they they kind of forgot about it or whatever. They argued about twenty or thirty minutes, but they didn't come check me again. But yeah, it didn't. Um, it didn't fit. But <laughs> I, I, I probably should have done it. I probably didn't need to do it, but you know, at that point, I'm thinking it's just me and Timmy and Jeremiah in the program class. I'm sure there was probably some other good guys too. I don't remember who all was in at that point, but we uh. <laughs> I ran off from them, and, and uh, you know, I guess you know, they they saw it. 
Is Jeremiah know? I don't know if Jeremiah knew or not. I don't, Jeremiah probably didn't, he didn't care because here's the thing with Jeremiah. I mean, Jeremiah was, a, he was awesome. But he got what he was really good. And, uh, we were really good friends. And Jeremiah was another kid that was really good on motocross, wasn't so good at TT. And we had become good friends when, when, um, he started riding first, he'd ride for CT or somebody, Frank or somebody, and he had no problem with them saying, I love my motor. And then they, they raced with it. They won. It was in A class that year. And he decided after that that he wanted to run Curtis and stuff. So, um, Curtis built him a motor and, and, uh, then he was moving up to pro class the next year. And we, and I knew after walking there and I said, this kid's going to be tough. He could never get a good start. But he couldn't get a very good start. And, and time he would, get out eighth and ninth and he come through the field to get up to second and third and we're like, he ever gets out front, he's gonna be gone. So I said he said, Why don't you come practice with us? So I went and started staying. I go and stay with him for a week or two at his house and we would ride every day. So we become really good friends and he said, Help me on my T T bike. So I was doing all his stuff for him. I mean I was telling him what job to run, what heights to run, you know, what sway bar to run, what swing arm and Jeremiah was never gonna say anything me about anything because you know I mean I was I was helping a ton and uh, and he knew it and it made him a lot better and we were pretty good friends too so we rode together a lot. It's crazy because where we rode was Jeremiah didn't I didn't have my track I didn't have a track at all. Jeremiah didn't have that. Jeremiah had a track down the road with another kid named named Bill Balance, which was which Billy become cross country champion for I don't know seven, eight years or something in a row. So nine. Yeah, nine. We so we went down to Billy's place and rode uh Billy had a motocross track, so every day we would go down there on his farm and ride. And Billy come out there and hang out and talk to us. And I don't think uh, it was probably back before he'd won any of his championships. So it was kind of cool to go there and get to know him and hang out with him and then watch his his career develop, you know, and go on to win all those championships, all those races and stuff. It was pretty neat. So that's what we were riding at and got how we got to how we got to become friends with him. So it's pretty awesome stuff. I I like the little bonus there you put in at the end at Astrobula. <laughs> that's 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 priceless right there. Yeah. Hey yeah, I have a question for you because you remember, I think it was in Danville, Virginia. You may not want to tell me this, but Spader and you both had problems. With whip. No. It may not, maybe it was, was it you. It might not have been you. Spader caught on fire. Leading. And then was I see you in second, and then you caught on fire. Well, no, no, no. Was it the last year that Spader rode for uh, you or something? Was yep. he riding? Yeah. Was, I think he was riding for Burgard. Uh, yeah, for Burgard. It, it was right before he came to ride for us. Yes. I, well, I'll tell you what. It was uh, uh, Greg Baker had an issue. Greg Baker, I think, was leading. And I don't know, something happened. And, and Greg was so into life in his life, he didn't have a kickstart. Once it quit, he couldn't kickstart it. He had a push start. So something happened to Greg's bike. I don't know if it backfired, just a air filter, or the air filter caught on fire or something. And then Travis was leading. I was in third, and then Travis was. 
Both of those two bikes caught on fire. Maybe they both caught on fire. I know. I, know, I think Akers did. I think. I don't know why. I don't know even how it happened. But I remember I won the race, but I was running third. And I thought, well, I'm going to get a decent finish. I'm going to get third. You know, you got Baker out front. He was really good. You got Travis in front of me. Pretty damn good, too. So, but I had Timmy, Doug, Joe, you know, everybody else behind me. So, I mean, your third's a good finish. Um, but they both broke. So, and I knew Greg Baker once I seen he broke and pulled off. I knew he wasn't coming, coming back out because he, I mean, that, he had everything right. I mean, he had carbon fiber gas lines, seat pan. I don't even know if he had a seat pan or maybe just a piece of foam or something settled, but no kick starter up. Um, I remember when he rolled out with no kick starter, I thought, whew, that's nuts. So I'm leaving my kick starter on bottom. But, but for both of them to catch on fire, Spader was yeah. going down the straightaway, and you see it smoking. He throws it into the sweeper, and it's freaking engulfed. Yeah, flames, and he freaking rolls off there. And and it was Curtis or somebody else ran out there and put it out. Yeah, I, it was. It's crazy because the only other bikes, I mean, you didn't ever see those things catch on fire. Nope. The only other, the other thing you ever seen catch on fire? Well, I hope the Cannondale catch on fire. It seems like some of the Cannondales caught on fire. But, you know, they were fueling. When he took that on fire, but I think they are. You just didn't, you didn't see that kind of stuff. I mean, those things are pretty solid. So, yeah, I mean, but the two of them in one race. Yeah, yeah, that's weird. So, yeah. We always wondered something was up. Yeah, they might have been. But, you know, I would have never known. I mean, uh, back then, obviously, me and Travis were friends, but we didn't really. We didn't hang out together and hang out each other's kids. And Greg Baker rode for Curtis. Um, but that was another thing. That bike was all top secret, you know. I mean, they, they kept that thing covered up, hid, you know. I mean, until it rolled to the line to race or practice it or whatever, Baker and they, I mean, they kept it, they kept that thing under wraps. You know, he comes from that stock car racing, that sprint car racing where, you know, everything's top secret. So, for the rest of us, you know, our stuff just sat out there. You can walk by and look at it on morning. So, yeah, that, I mean, I don't remember anybody hiding anything uh, at, at, at the normal group of people, you know. Yeah. Did, did you guys play with fuels at all? We played with a lot of fuels. Kirk, um, he would play with that stuff on the dyno, and then he would call me and say, he was coming to the races and say, hey, you need to call this place or you need to go, you need to go here and you need to get elf or you need to get this BP or you need to get whatever, power mist or, well, we got in trouble one time in Texas um, with power mist um, and that didn't really have anything to do with Curtis that was I, I was up here again um, and they were up in, that, in the Indiana, Pennsylvania area that power mist fuel for us where we raked up our town and they would bring us fuel and get us fuel. And it seemed like it was pretty good. So we were running. It was free. So we were going to run it. You know, and I gave it to John Scott, John Knights. You know, I was giving it to all those guys. They were giving it to me. So I'm like, those, give it to those guys. So I'm hauling the races. And uh, we get to Boyd, Texas. And we roll out on the start line. And I can't remember what year it was. Donnie was on the front row. And they dropped this, this little doohickey down in his gas tank. I don't know, some kind of a meter. And they pulled it out. They said, you're illegal. And Donnie's like, no, nah, no, nah, I'm not illegal. And they said, yeah, you're illegal. So um, 
I thought, damn, that dog tried to pull fast in the walls. So they go to the second row, and they John, they they started up on the right side of me, and they got John Scott. And they said he was illegal. And at that point, when they checked John's, he was legal, and they told him, they told him, you've got two minutes to, to dump your kayak and get back to your spot. So Donnie hauled ass and pits, took off, and then John takes off, and they were still three or four before they got to me. I knew when John Scott rode off, they said he was illegal. I knew, I knew right then what was wrong. Because they, I, those, both those guys got their fuel for me. And it was power missed. And I'm like, this is bad. I, I'm like, hey, come check mine to help the rest of those guys. You know, I didn't even know if I didn't get this thing dumped out. So I, when they got to me and mine was still legal, I took off in the pits. And just as I pulled in, Mark Paul was standing there. And Mark had fuel. So we just turned the bike upside down. I mean, we turned it completely upside down, dumped it out. And we turned it back over and Mark filled it full of I think they had quads. I don't know, probably quads oil. So um, we we filled mine up, and I rode back to my spot. I don't know where John got his fuel at. Rode back to his spot. Donnie was leaving the points that year and come back to the front row. He got his off Cookie. I don't know if you remember Cookie. No. Black. But he was the only black guy that was going to the race at that point. He was from California. Donnie pulled in there and got his Cookie. And, uh, Donnie always swore that Cookie gave him his fuel for a generator. But Donnie only made it about four or five laps to load up. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> he made four or five laps to load up. And then come to the, come to the thing after that, they made a big deal about, uh, you know, about us all running power mist and it being illegal. Well, power mist, all of them, and they, they did a recheck or somehow re, re, redone the, the fuel or whatever. So they checked for all and their fuel wasn't illegal. Um, so then it came out in the magazines and everything that we were all disqualified for legal fuel and made by Pyramus. The Pyramus was going to sue the AMA and stuff over it. They put it into a big old mess because then when they went back and checked it, it was, fuel was actually legal. Um, so yeah, that turned into a mess. We never did, never ran Pyramus after that again just because of that, that mess. I mean, it wasn't their fault, but you know, I wasn't really going to take the chance again, but. Getting back to messing with fuels, yeah, Curtis messed with a lot of fuels, and we were at somewhere in Ohio one time, and Curtis showed up, and I don't know where we went to get fuel, and I think it was Elf. He had some Elf shipped in somewhere, and we went and picked it up, and mixed up, and we took it, and we went out, and I was running away at the heat race and seas, and uh, so they, they pushed me back, and pushed me in the trailer, and you know, it ain't got very long to change, so we'll throw another coffee end on it. And of course, Dad, my dad flips out. He grabs that fuel and moves it, threw it out through the parking lot. We'll never bring this shit back here. <laughs> so, I don't know. We just put our regular fuel back in. It went out. It was okay. But, yeah, so I don't know. But we tried a lot of fuels. It seemed like about every every other race, we had a different fuel. Uh, so, I, that was Curtis. It wasn't me. Curtis running stuff in the dyno and saying, this did this or this did that. You know, it's, I want to run it. Running a couple pools on the dyno is different than 20, 20 laps of a TT race. So, totally. And, and you just, you, most of the experimenting I've, we've done with fuels, or I've done with fuels, is all the really high horsepower stuff is detrimental to your longevity of life. Oh, yeah. And the stuff, like that stuff. And we had the, the biggest place where we had the most problems with fuels was when we went to Pond and we would test everything and run everything over here because we were ran PT. 
and jet everything, everything good. And we would get over there to the damn pond and pull And went, and I think that's what we ran over there. I think that's what they lost the was killing. And we had to rejet over there every time. We couldn't. We like, we just never could. I mean, we would go out, we could run four, five, six laps, and that some bitch would seize on us. So, and it got us in trouble two or three times. It got us behind. We had to switch motors right before the start of the race. But we did. We just went way up on jets and ran it rich as could be, and it would make it. But, um, you know, when you're going that far and you're changing fuels and, and uh, elevation and stuff like that, it, it's hard for them. So, and we didn't have it. We, we did the BP brought in. We, we had AP brought in. Yeah, for for part of it? Yeah. Yeah, see, we, we, the guys the guys that we were hooked up with that carried their stuff or whatever, he would always bring us elf because he was a big elf guy. I don't know if he's an elf dealer or a huge elf fan or whatever. That's what he would always bring us. But we didn't really have access to elf over here to get it. It was hard to get in the U.S. to, to test with it. Um, we had had that one, that one time in, in Ohio that Curtis had gone grew up with it. But, I mean, if we could have had VP, you know, shipped in over there, yeah, we, we'd probably been really good. But it was, we did, you know, it was just, it was, that was such a hard deal for us to, to, to you know, build a bike here and ship it over. And, and, you know, the first year we shipped it over and we brought pretty much everything with us. We brought the motor, we brought two spare motors with us. We brought shocks with us. And I can't remember, we had everything with us on the airplane. So just get over there and put the bike together and hit the race. Yeah, exactly. We we were fortunate that Phil Charles Leisure was over there, you know, the ATV world, whatever you want to call them at the time, and uh, all the stuff would get shipped over, and Martin Fletcher would assemble, you know, and we'd be all ready, and Lauren would show up, and you know, we made the same. Lauren made sure we we were running the same fuel, and, and it was a pretty it was a cookie cutter deal. Martin came up with some brake systems for them, and, and did some things like that. He was a pretty ingenuity ingenuity there, you know, for longevity of life, so you didn't have to change brakes, things like that. We were kind of a little behind on that. You guys have been doing it for a long time. We tried to go over there and do it, and we just tried to take what we knew and go over there and make it work, and and we had a lot of fun. That was a good race. I like that place, and I've always wanted to go back and over this, over the last couple of years, but I want to go back and check it out. I've always thought it's kind of cool that I did go over there and let them see that place, but and how much that race has grown over the years. Um, God, I was back in 2010, was the last time I go, I couldn't even believe it in 2010 how big it had got, how cool it was. I mean, it was, I thought it was maybe the, be- the best ATV race there is. So, I mean, it's just, it was unbelievable with the, how the, the town gets behind it and, they do the parade and the night racing, and it's it's as good as it gets. That thing is. I would like to go down to that big race in Argentina. Yeah, I haven't been to that one either. So I, I would like to go see that one just because the sheer numbers of entries is just unbelievable. Yeah, there's there's a lot of cool races out there. And back when we were racing the nationals, I was riding all the time. You see all this stuff like the. the Grand Prix at Atlanta or Atlanta or what was that one you guys had out there in California? I don't know if they still do it or not. Elsinore or Adelanto? 
toes, you know what I mean? I, I'm like, we would see that stuff, you know, and I mean, I a work race, never been to a work race, you know, but you see the stuff about them, and they're cool, and, you know, I've talked to people like four years run some now, and they're good in the shell race some, and uh, talked to Josh Fredericks, he obviously won that series a couple times, you know, you just, it just be kind of cool to go do some of that stuff, and like to do some of that stuff, but when you're racing and, and you're really good, you're pretty much married to the to the Nationals, so we were lucky enough that where I was to come in at a certain point in my career where I got to go do the Mickey's for a couple of years. And then the Mickey's went away and we had the, the, the pace clear channel off-road stuff. Which we were, I was lucky enough to do that stuff, which was really, really cool. I mean, the, the guys racing today, I've never got to be able to do that. But, man, it was that was some cool stuff. So I was lucky to do a lot of that stuff. I think Mickey's was a gateway to international growth in our sport. Mickey's was huge, you know, and you go back and you look through that era of the, when I first came in and a little bit even before that, I mean, you know, you had Robbie Gordon there and you had Jimmy Johnson there. I mean, these guys were kids, you know. Um, Robbie was young and, and Jimmy Johnson was racing the little Odyssey thing. Michael likes the whatever they call them. And, you know, and Casey Mears and to see how some of those guys evolved what their careers were pretty damn cool. Yeah, it- I remember the year that Robbie Gordon came out. I think it was, I think it was 85. And freaking, who is this kid? And he won, wins the series. Yeah. About one every, yeah. Yeah. yeah that was, I, I remember watching all that stuff and, you know, in the magazines and stuff and thinking, where did this guy come from? Just won like almost every race that first year. And you're like, wow. And so. If you if you talk to people in the industry, other than his ADD issue, you know he is just super knowledgeable and knows how to drive. I mean, I don't know where it comes from. I mean, you have a lot of feel for the machine, but he just has an uncanny feel for his truck or car or whatever it is that he's driving uh, to make it go super fast. One of the problems is he overdrives just about everything he drives. He always has, you know. You'd have thought as he got older, maybe some of that would go away, but it's crazy because he had that, that stadium truck series when they run on the asphalt or whatever. Mm-hmm. A little a kid that we used to race forward with, I don't know if you remember, remember it on Sean Sermon. Uh, yeah. Worked, worked at Max. Sean went on to be like his, like his manager or something and, and went to all those races. And his best friend with Robbie now and announced all those truck races for him. And it's crazy. You know, you see one of those truck races and you got so many there announcing. And I'm like, this is nuts. You know, I mean, and, and for a while he was Robbie's manager or something. I'm like, this is crazy because you know, we grew up racing forward with this kid. How, and he's from Massachusetts or wherever. How did he end up hanging out with this guy from California? But, but now he did. Yeah, I'm trying to get him on the show. Yeah. But he's yeah. always busy. I mean, everybody's busy, you know. It's 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 the evolution of our life, you know. I mean, you think about when I asked you the first time you came on, you know, how you got into ATV, and and you go back into the seventies when you were riding the rigid three wheelers, and then you know you bring it into the eighties, 
we're still on three wheelers, but it's evolving, you know, and then um, it had to have been with Robbie Gordon and Mickey's. It had to have been 95, not 85. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. It's just unbelievable the amount of things that we've got to go do and experience. It's unbelievable. Yeah. And it's, it, it's crazy. I mean, I wish they had a, a, a a stadium series for the ATVs now that they don't, but I wish they did because that pace thing, I mean, when it came out, um, it was really set up mainly for the monster truck things and the ATVs were supposed to be a side show. And uh, it wasn't long before they kind of, the people that were running that deal said, you know what? The ATV things are pretty cool. And by the second year, it was kind of an ATV race. I mean, they, they, they advertised it as a monster show, but it was by that time they had the whole floor was, was laid out for motocross class for the ATVs and the monster truck guys wrapping around that. So it turned out really, really good. Obviously, I don't know what happened uh, because I mean they were they were filling those stadiums up. So I really, what happened? Well, I just wish that Nicky Johnson would have never gotten murdered because that series went away solely because he quit managing it. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That's for sure. Yeah, because no one, no one really took it over. I mean, his son tried to, but I mean, some people just ain't cut out to do that stuff. Right. Exactly. Shane, I want to thank you for giving us some insight into the TT racing. Um, It's a, it's an art form all on its own, and and you were the master of the brush at, at your time. I know that Greg Baker and and other riders had done. You know, great things, you know, Gary Denton and Spader and, you know, Far. I mean, some of these guys were, were artists as well. But you were one of the guys that was a, a leader in that industry. And um, Daryl Rath still does a lot of cool stuff. And his son Tucker was pretty fast as well. Yeah, it's it's crazy. I look at, at Daryl and Daryl's still racing a lot. And Tucker is the same age as Logan. And it's crazy because I got a, 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 an article hanging in the in my garage with Logan and Tucker when they were I think they were five. They the, the, they did a magazine article with Logan and Tucker when they five had their pictures there with the four wheelers and all the stuff they like. I've been going to use that as a throwback Thursday, um, just because it's cool, you know, with with Daryl and, and me and Daryl being good friends. And obviously, I've known Tucker since he was born uh, and run that. It, it's pretty cool. But Daryl, he's you know, he's always been a really good rider, but the stuff he's building and the stuff he does now is just, I mean, the bikes he builds is just kind of insane. You know, I mean, how, how detailed they are. And, uh, and, you know, I mean, he's just, he's an artist with that stuff. And I, um, I, I that kind of stuff talking at I think he's elevated the game and taken it to a new level with putting some of the four stroke motors in some of the different tra- chassis. To, to generate a, a better overall TT machine. And um, I really like the father-son deal. That's actually how I got hooked up with Tucker and Daryl. I seen a video of Tucker beating in a head-to-head. And um, I just thought that was an awesome story because you how, how often, I mean, do, you never got to race against your 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 son professionally. 
Yeah. Sons get to race against their dad professionally. I know the Earnhardts did it, but in in our world, that's the first I've ever seen. Yeah, in the ATV stuff, for sure. Now, I got to race against my oldest son, Logan, in cars. We race cars, which is kind of cool. I mean, it's a lot of fun. But they, yeah, I mean, it's like when we were back to Asheville a couple years ago for that Legends thing, I took my kids with me and I'm thinking, they had been there. Logan had raced there and won there when he was like four or five, six years old. And we hadn't been back since. Land and my youngest kid had been around three, four years old. He didn't really even remember Asheville. I mean, yeah, he looked around and said, I don't know, maybe I do, maybe I don't, you know. Logan's like, yeah, I remember it a little bit, but, you know, it was kind of cool to have them back there to watch me race. And I mean, because they, I mean, it's been so long since I've raced that they had not saw it, you know. And, and it was a big deal. I mean, like a thousand people or a thousand riders showed up that thing and people coming up and wanting to talk and talk about old times and sign autographs and stuff. And my kids are like, this is pretty cool. but. Logan wouldn't like the race, but he had a broken arms, so he didn't get raced. Because I'm glad he had a broken arms. I'm not sure Ashton Jewel was the place I want to throw him out there. So. <laughs> I'm not sure that's the first place I want him to start going down that front straightaway. And the only thing we had to drive is that he took the arm by. So if he wouldn't have a broken arm, I, he would have been on my 250 arm. So, uh, which was cool to see him ride that thing. But, uh, what did the boys think of you racing? Um, they liked it. I mean, they 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 uh they thought it was cool, and and uh, it was a night race at Asheville. All the place was packed, and and uh, they were they were like it. I mean, Logan walked all the way around, got a camera, and walked around, had pictures of everything, and uh, but then it was it was just it was just kind of a cool. I mean, there was a big party after it, and and uh, at Baldwin's Baldwin's and uh, uh, Jody Baton both had their trucks set up and they had a band and. Bunch of stuff there, so we were hanging out there and people coming over and talking. Like Brad Ryle, who's won the championship, I don't know how many years in a row now. You know, Harold the Goodman was there and Timmy, and we're all there hanging out. And Logan was like, yeah, this is this is kind of this is kind of cool, you know. So, but the, the, but they, I mean, even though they they've known me their whole life while growing up, they've kind of been more motorcycle. You know, I mean, they don't they want to go ride their dirt bikes and not so much the four wheelers, but um, and I never pushed them to do either. Whatever they want to do is fine. Kind of never really pushed the forward thing on them because if they wanted to do it, we're, we're going to do it for sure. But I don't want them, want them to do it and they go out and get hurt and then they turn around looking and go, you want them to do this? Well, uh, I don't ever want that. So it's whatever they want to do. And if they decided at the moment and said, hey, I want to race forward or whatever, we'd, we'd go racing. So <laughs> that's awesome, man. Shane, as always, it's a pleasure. Um, anytime you got something going on, reach out to me. I, I'd love to sit and talk with you. I could talk with you probably all night. Um, my gals are freaking out already because I went over the time, but um, it's okay. You know, you have a lot of good inter- information for people, and it's a great story. and And I know the fans will love it. Well, if I uh, I decide to come out for a Supercross, I get a hold of you and hook up with you or something. Oh, dude, I'd love to sit down and do a live with you. That'd be that would be even better. We'll try it. I mean, that or, or or at some point, I want to come to I want to come to a work race. I've never been to one. I want to at least come walk. I don't know if I could ever get motivated to get in shape. And all this foot of snow we got here would melt. 
maybe I could uh, ride a little bit. I'd like to come race, but I want to race with Corey. I'd love to go out there and work Corey, but I don't know. He's got a big advantage on me. He's way younger, and he's, uh, uh, he rides a lot more than me. So. <laughs> he's fast. Corey? Yeah. Oh, he was always fast. So He's still good. I, I, I think he could run. I think he could run in the pro class, but you know, you'd never convince him of that. No, I well, you know, he doesn't want he doesn't put the time into it to do it right. He just, you know, he's at the point he's like, he just wants to go ride and have a good time. So, but yeah, I love Corey, and, and and I can't and his mom and his dad, and I usually go out and see him. Um, usually around December or January, but um, I don't know if we'll make it this year or not. But um, he's definitely been one of my buddies. But he, he, there's no doubt about. It. I mean, I, I think a lot of these guys that I grew up racing with that were really good. I don't think they, they really ever lose the speed. It's just, obviously, they're not in as good a shape. So the bikes have gotten better, for sure. And and, and the, the guys riding, are, are, the guys that are riding, they're really good, too. So, uh, but I think, you know, I mean, he'll never be just an average rider. He'll always be good. Exactly. Got skills, man. The guy's got mad skills. Yeah. Uh, Vegas in April. Uh, I believe it's in April. It's going to be a if it goes because of the COVID thing. Uh, it's more of a stadium style um, race in the logs. It's shorter. Um, you don't you don't want to go to Havasu. You don't want to go to Mesquite. I've been. It's rough. They're brutal. Yeah, I went to out Havasu last year with Corey and uh, Billy Pointer and rode our side by side. Holy shit, that place is rough down there. So. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I would like to find one, even like Glen Helen or, or someplace that's not too brutal. Uh, if I do, yeah. we'll, uh, we'll keep, I'm going to keep an eye and watch that schedule and see when I can get free and see when I can get some riding in. We'd love to have you, Shane. All right, Lenny. It was, uh, it's good talking to you, buddy. Always good talking to you, sir. You make sure you stay healthy. And if you ever need anything, you just hit me up. We'll take care. All right, buddy. The team here at ATV Talk would love your feedback. Please email us at hello at ATVTalkPodcast.com. San Diego's Body Evolution and Wellness Center. With over 17 years experience, Dr. Heidi looking out after all your chiropractic needs and Coach PJ looking out after all your fitness needs. Visit our website, www.bodyevolution.org, or call for an appointment, 619-987-8875. Duncan Technologies International. More than 33 years in the industry building racing programs and ATVs around the world. We build winners. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the episode. If you did, don't forget to rate us on all the available platforms and share us with your loved ones. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook for more ATV Talk News. See you next time.